Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Therapy Chat Podcast, episode 392. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. This week's episode is sponsored by Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now, for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Use coupon code CHAT or click the link in the show notes to get two free months at therapynotes.com. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and today I'm bringing you a new episode, one that was recorded several months back, all the way back in last fall of 2022, and I've been waiting to share it with you for when I felt ready to watch it back and reflect, and as I've been talking about grief a lot and what's been happening recently in my own life. Things have been pretty raw. And at the same time, I've really wanted to share this episode with you and be sure that I could speak about it thoughtfully and in as grounded of a way as possible. Today's conversation looks at the insidiousness and pervasiveness of white privilege and the racism that is inherent in being a white person, how it shows up in our interactions with people of color in ways that most of us white people don't see and really don't want to see and really hope not to see, or we would prefer to not have that be there at all. But because it's so inherent in 
being a white-bodied person, someone walking in this world who has been culturally conditioned as white, we have an impact on the people we interact with, whether we realize it or not. And the important thing is that we do need to realize it so we can examine it and change it. And that's what today's episode is about. I'm going to be sharing with you the interview that I did with my guest, Xanthia Johnson. Xanthia is a clinical social worker practicing in the D.C. area and also provides coaching through the Compassionate Anti-Racism Project with her partner, Christian. So the Compassionate Anti-Racism Project is a project that was started by Xanthia and Christian, Black integrative neuropsychotherapists with extensive postgraduate professional training in trauma-focused therapy and expressive arts. They are primed to help others realize the emotional and intellectual awareness needed to understand racism so the journey to anti-racism can begin. And the Compassionate Anti-Racism Project compassionately supports white people and organizations who are ready to have courageous conversations about race and learn how to leverage their privilege to humbly support people of color. So as you're listening to this conversation, if you're a person of color, you won't be surprised at the ways that white privilege shows up in my actions. And yet, there was an interaction that we had during our conversation where Xanthia had the opportunity to model with me and for all of you who are listening, how she would work with that within her compassionate anti-racism project program. Some of the points that you'll hear in this conversation are one that I really appreciated. She said that she doesn't believe in microaggressions. And I would love for you to listen in and hear what she had to say about that. She gave examples of some of the subtle ways that white privilege shows up in interactions between white people and people of color, using examples from her own experience, and how the fear of offending people of color prevents white people from engaging in anti-racism work. This was a really rich conversation. I'm deeply grateful for Xanthia's taking the time to share about her program and the way she gently invited me to reflect on my own behavior in our conversation, as well as just the work that she's doing. One of the points that was very clear in our conversation is that to see aspects of ourselves that we don't like, things that we feel ashamed of, and ways that we don't want to be or be perceived by others is the work that has to happen for our culture, Western culture, to actually make change. And if you care about making things better, it's really important to pay attention. Xanthia talks very clearly about how shame makes us want to hide and it interrupts the work that needs to happen. So we would prefer, and I think many white people will find what I'm about to say to be familiar, that the way that we would prefer to learn about anti-racism would be by 
doing quiet reading on our own, learning about it intellectually in a way where we don't have to challenge our own biases and our own blind spots because our biases present us with blind spots. Because of our biases, we have blind spots and we don't want to look at them. So we can easily just gloss right over it and miss it if we're not in relationship with others who can call our attention to what we're not seeing. And as Xanthia said, even in spaces that are led by white people, when the group who's doing the learning is a group of white people, there will still be blind spots and things missed that won't happen if people of color are, are present. So I found this very thought-provoking, and it definitely caused me some cognitive dissonance I could feel in our experience together. And it's just another reason to recommit to continually working on decolonizing myself, doing as much as I can to dismantle the way that I have internalized the racism of white supremacy culture. So I hope you will find this conversation thought-provoking too. And as always, thank you so much for listening. If you are a white person who wants to dive in to undoing the impact of white supremacy culture that you've internalized, get in touch with Xanthia. You can find her at www.compassionateantiracism.org. And that link is also in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and today I'm very honored to be here with Xanthia Johnson, a licensed psychotherapist in Washington, D.C., and I'm thrilled to be talking with you again. You're a multiple-time Therapy Chat guest. Xanthia, thank you for being here today. Laura, thank you for letting me visit Therapy Chat yet again. It's a pleasant surprise, a wonderful way to get moving with, with the fall, season of fall, you know? Yeah. Well, it's always a joy to speak with you, and your energy is very peaceful and positive and kind and compassionate, and I really appreciate that about you. So I want to talk to you about your newest project, and... I'm really excited for our audience to hear about what you're doing. But before we get into it, can we start off by you telling everybody who you are and what you do? My name is Anthea Johnson. I'm the owner and CEO of Urban Playology. We provide experiential therapy, expressive arts therapy to communities of color and the LGBT community, both of which I am a member, proud member. And our focus really is on healing the hurt. That's what we do. And that's what I do in my full-time job. And then with the most recent project, the Compassionate Anti-Racism Project, we are supporting white people and helping them leverage their privilege to be a voice for the voiceless. And it's been a wonderful labor of love, a gargantuan undertaking and an honor and a privilege on so many levels. I'm glad to be able to share a little bit about the project today and hope some of your listeners will reach out to us so we can get started. Yeah, that's exciting. And when I saw that you were doing this, I was like, oh, yeah, 
We definitely should talk about that. So can you tell, I guess, first of all, can you tell everybody how are you delivering this? Is it like you work with organizations or with individuals? Is it like one shot? Is it coaching? Is it groups? That's a great question. So I want to dial back to how we got to the Compassionate Anti-Racism Project. Here we are, two African-American therapists helping our communities move through one of the most traumatic experiences that we could have in life, and that is the pandemic. The pandemic really impacted those of us who are of color on so many different levels because we were already at a certain place. We are resilient people, nonetheless, with the historic lack of resources and societal dynamics and, and so forth, it made it really tough. So we were working through these things and and also to trying to support our clients and working through the tremendous, tremendous grief, tremendous grief that they were experiencing. And Christian and I are both proud aunties to biracial, multicultural children who we adore. And it just came to us that if we did not begin to transform, work on, practice transforming our own pain so that, so that our nieces and nephews could have a chance at a better life, then everything that we've done, all the work that we've done to get to where we are in our lives might be in vain. So it's like that kind of almost like a responsibility to the next generation to do needed healing work at this level for them so that when they start out in the world, I guess when they get older in the world, that they'll have a different world. Yeah, absolutely. And the only way, the force of that, that pain, the only way to really heal from pain is to be of service. Mm. Pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. The only way to bridge the gap between pain and healing is to be of service. It's the only way. So, you know, obviously, I'm, I know I don't need to tell you this, but just to make this point, as the pandemic was affecting so many people, the increased awareness during the summer of 2020 in particular and after of the impact of racism in our culture and just how deeply embedded it is in the present day was that was going along, going on along with the major change and trauma of the pandemic. So how did you decide to create this? So what we were hearing in the therapy room were alludes to experiencing racism on such higher, such higher frequencies among our clients. And that was our experience too. Mm -hmm. And you grow up, you think that you're equipped. As, as people of color, we learn about our race, who we are, and how the world views us between ages of three and five, while our white counterparts don't even start exploring that until maybe 10 or 12. So, you know, for us, having to see the senseless killings of our people and having to hear the stress, we thought we might be able to offer something different than what we've seen on the market in terms of anti-racism work. I just want to be transparent and say that sometimes, you know, sometimes anti-racism work 
is marketed as a place of healing. And then when people show up, people who are well-meaning and open to learning about how to work on this in their lives, people feel unsafe in those, in those workshops. There's a lot of cognitive dissonance that happens. The amygdala is triggered. I'm here to try to be of service and to try to unfeel what I'm feeling, to feel it at lower frequencies. And right now, everything is up. And what we know is that the part of the brain that needs to be able to process how to learn gets flooded by all the emotions of the right brain when we're not safe. So the concept for us is what if we could cultivate and curate a space of almost magical safety for white people in homogenous groups, white people who are ready to do the work, ready to address their privilege, ready to do the work with us. What if we were able to do that? What would that look like? What would that mean? And that's really how we got started with the project. And we didn't do a lot of marketing. It was very organic. And we started getting calls from organizations who knew about us literally by word of mouth. So small private practices who were had predominantly white or white staff, clinicians, organizations that were more spherical, like dance troops. Mm. And, and they were ready to do the work or they were sick and tired of being sick and tired. And the way that it works with us is that we are committed to doing the parallel process. So there's no hierarchy involved in the work. Everybody is in their lane. Christian and I are doing our own work. And so we're working together. And when we're working together, we're working on the same goal. So we spend a lot of time working to cultivate that safe space where white people can say whatever they need to say to start the conversation for themselves. And just the act of being in the presence a person of color who is nodding, who's smiling, whose nonverbals are encouraging you to say more. Something changes in the nervous system. And once they get out what they need to get out, then we can start supporting them and putting in what they want to put in. It's a beautiful process. We had conceptualized it, but when we began experience it, experiencing it firsthand, it was being our words, really. Yeah. It's a beautiful offering. It's a beautiful gift that you're giving because you're using your presence. And that takes, you know, like you said, you're working, you're doing your work, but that takes from you too. So it's a beautiful ability to hold space for other people that way. And we, we knew that that had to be a component. We knew that people had to be in this space really working through the disbelief because we spend a big part of that time. You know, if we think about the three working phases of a ther the therapy relationship, establishing rapport, the working phase. And so we spend a lot of time supporting people in their exploration of what it might mean to actually be in a safe space with Black people, people, women of color, who are not outwardly attacking, outwardly having an experience that distracts white people from 
the sacred learning that they get to, that they need to do. So there's nothing they can't say in the, in the rooms with us. Nothing. Wow. That's just, that's like very generous. It just feels so generous. But, you know, I assume that the people who are signing up for this have, their intentions are rooted deeply in wanting right action and not, you know, people who would be aware of racist things that they would say and just be like, I can say anything here. It's a little different. When people, when the guard comes down, the privilege does begin to surface. And so without realizing it, we start seeing and hearing the things we need to work on. Uh, what we do is, so once once we start hearing those statements, those remarks, then it gives us something to work with. We don't immediately attack. So we don't, we don't go right in. What we do is then we, we put the didactic experience, the left brain experience with the experiential experience, which you, as we know, makes for optimal learning. It allows all different learning styles to grasp some element of something important in order for us to move forward as a group. And so the aggressions, I do not, we do not believe in microaggressions. Mm. Perhaps we have no idea who coined the term. Do we get micro mosquito bites? No. Mosquito bite itches. It's a mosquito bite. <laughs> you know, so what, what is this thing about? What is a microaggression? An aggression, if it's something that has made me feel that I'm less of a person or that that that's how I have to show up in the world, then it's an aggression. It's an assault to my soul. We have a lot of other tenets in terms of come as you are, literally come as you are from the inside out. We don't believe in microaggressions. And I just mentioned aggressions are aggressions. And we lead with every encounter that I have with a white person is going to bring about white privilege. It just is. As part of the skin I'm in as a white person is I bring all this privilege. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So there's actually some relief in that, that we don't have to spend too much time pretending like we can catch that snake in the grass. That's another part of our, our paradigm is that we're not trying to undo anything. We're, we're pulling up all the weeds. Everything is out there on the table. Therapists, we've all had that moment. You wake up in the middle of the night. Oh my gosh, did I do my notes? Well, you don't have to worry about that anymore when you use therapy notes. Therapy notes makes it easy to write your notes, get them done quickly, but thoroughly, My group practice has used therapy notes for six years and everyone always finds it easy to use. But the best thing is if you do need help, you can call their customer service number and a person answers the phone. And anytime I've ever had to use it, which is maybe three times in the past six years, my issue has been resolved easily with a cheerful demeanor in 15 minutes or less. So I highly recommend therapy notes. And don't forget, go to therapynotes.com and use promo code chat to get two free months.
and then do the didactic and experiential work, what it does is it soulfully redirects our our students back to themselves in the homogenous groups again, really cultivating a level of safety. And so then we start hearing people say, well, hmm, what about that comment I made about three weeks ago? Talk about it. Let's talk about it. And that's where the learning comes. I think that the most challenging part of this project is that we don't want it to be a phase and we don't, you know, it can't be a phase. Yeah. Compassionate anti-racism work, as Christian says, is a journey, not a destination. It's like speaking a language. In order to learn a language, we immerse ourselves in the culture. And when we remove ourselves from that culture, what happens? We get a little rusty. Yeah. It's just part of how we're, how we're made. So we want people to view us as our, as their, as their home base. And I think the challenge is sometimes when people say, well, you know, we're going to, we're going to want to go do some work with this other, this other group. And we're just, cause we're just, that's a part of white privilege. Trying to make sure you get all of the perfect combinations mm. of information to help you feel better about being white. As opposed to saying, cause think about it. When people come to us and they say, you know, I want you to be my therapist. And then if they come in a couple of weeks later, say, you know, I went to my other therapist to talk about this. We say, whoa, you can work with that other therapist, but we have to be a little bit more intentional about what that looks like. And I think sometimes part of white privilege is this, this notion that, well, are you trying to hold me back? Are you saying that we belong to you as students? Not at all. It is a manifestation of privilege that we get to talk about and explore, study with whomever you want to study with, as long as you're bringing into that aware, bringing with that an awareness about the inner workings of that decision. Mm. It's discomfort that makes us say, oh, we're going to go, let me go try somebody else. Right. Flight. Yes. So we work really hard at composing. And building up the nervous system to tolerate the moments of discomfort. Only way to get through discomfort is to go through it. You don't get past it. You go through it. Yeah, that's so true. So we work with groups. We've done individual coaching for folks who want that experience and want the privacy. Many of the folks that make their way to us are are in groups. And to see the outcomes, if you will, working with us for six to nine months. We're now worldwide. We have students in Ireland and England. So congratulations. Thank you. Something really special about what we're doing. And we are reaching people, which is nice. Yeah. Running a group private practice has been a challenging and rewarding experience. And one thing that has made it so much easier is Therapy Notes. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. If you're coming from another EHR, like I did, Therapy Notes makes the transition incredibly easy, importing your demographic data free of charge so you can get going right away. My team has found Therapy Notes very easy to learn. It's intuitive. The customer support is second to none. 
And that's one of the things that has kept me a Therapy Notes customer for several years now. Anytime I've needed to contact Therapy Notes for help with an issue I couldn't figure out on my own, I've been able to get through to someone and resolve the issue within 15 minutes, 99% of the time. Find out what more than 100,000 mental health professionals already know. Try Therapy Notes for two months absolutely free. Just click on the link in the show notes or enter the promo code chat at therapynotes.com. Being so afraid of making a misstep and needing reassurance, I think, is very much a part of the anti-racism journey for white people. I know that I do fear very much saying the wrong thing because I wouldn't want to do some type of aggression toward you or anyone, and especially like, you know, anyone who has less power than me because of my identities. I think this is a, a great opportunity for your listeners to hear a little bit about how this how this might go. And so I can start out with saying that I, African-American, identify as an African cisgender, African-American queer woman. And in the moment, me, you know, me participating in this interview and all of those elements, those markers of minority status, new majority status, as I've heard it say, I am immediately thrust into the the learned pattern, trying to make sure I make you feel better immediately. Not on the project, not going through my notes to make sure I don't have any notes here. <laughs> not going through my notes to make sure I'm giving a really, really strong plug for our work. There's a number of things that go through my mind in the moment. Oh, no, I want Laura to be okay. Two, what does she need me to say? Three, if I say the wrong thing, am I going to be punished by her not airing the interview? If I say the right thing, so what? how can I prepare myself for what her shame, where her shame will lead us in this moment. Do I talk less about the compassionate anti-racism project so that she feels comfortable enough to keep asking me questions? It's like, why don't you give her a piece of your mind? Are you kidding me? It doesn't matter whether she airs this. You need to be able to speak up to her and say, you know, why, why are you asking me this? I'm uncomfortable because of the training and my life experiences that I've had that is not aligned with how I have decided to show up in the world in my life. I, I don't see how that is helpful. That approach is helpful. Being able to talk about it may be helpful. Using that, that approach is not helpful. Well, I appreciate your compassionate approach and making it safe for me to feel comfortable enough to discuss my, you know, feeling in that moment. And I guess that's an example of exactly how it works in your work. And I want to add another element here. Some of your listeners are going to say, I'm completely confused. <laughs> Isn't it the totally right thing for Laura to say, are you comfortable in this conversation about racism? What can I do? Is, are there ways for me in this conversation to lever leverage my privilege? so that your voice is illuminated more than not? Isn't that the whole point of this? And the answer is no. <laughs> the person who has the least privilege 
always carries the burden of that of those who have the most power go. And according to what research says, you're second on the food chain, white man, white woman, the rest of us triple and fall down somewhere on the scale. Right. You can take your shame and say, well, that was fun. Let me go on with my life. Try not to do that again. I can call a couple of my friends and, and say, talk about the experience and see if I owe you an apology. Oh, Xanthia, an apology. I can maybe be actionable with, with a hybrid of those responses. Oh, well, I did think to apologize and did not say it because then I felt like I might be centering myself. But um, it's confusing. I acknowledge it's confusing. I, I care about our relationship and don't want to cause harm to you. And clearly... I said, by saying that, that was putting a burden onto you. And even as I was saying it, I thought of it. I thought, you're making it, you're centering yourself here right now when you ask her, is this like, is this going okay for you? And so I am going to reflect about that, but I do apologize to you as well. Appreciate that we work towards amends. And so, you know, it takes a lot to do this work. You know, what goes through the mind is how many times someone else of color may have felt this way with me. And how do I address that? Because it's like, how do I, how do I, how do I clean up all these assaults, all these potential assaults? I'd just rather go back to life the way it was when I was just trying my best and self-teaching and taking the quizzes and going to the webinars and going to the retreats and just going back to life as I knew it. But this is something that once you see it, you can't unsee it. Once yeah. you, hear it you can't unhear it. It's just always there. And even in even in us doing this recording, Laura, like you're coming out. There are some of your listeners who are going to have an experience. They're going to be like, oh, I didn't know Laura wrote that hard for people of color. <laughs> I knew she wasn't racist, but I, I didn't know that. So it's a coming out for white people too, to people who you, you know, people who know you in a certain way and who then would have to see you in another way. It's another dimension of your identity that gets exposed and you don't have any control over how people respond to it. Yeah. Last night I got, Locked out of my car at Walmart. And, mm. and let's just say I got all my steps in for the day and for the week. Told me my aisles looking for this key, mm. black key. And when the store was closing, we went to the entrance where our buggy purchased items were. And the white police officer in charge of securing the store, the evening ship, well, the store is going to be closing soon. He'd already spoken with us and understood the, the dynamic of our dilemma. And he put us out in the cold. And when I went to ask, is there a way for us to just stand on the inside near the front entrance where we're away from merchandise so that we may maintain heat or some level of warmth? It's 45 degrees. Yeah. And he said, well, no. He made, made a couple of comments about how 
keys get lost and what uh, alluding to the mistakes that we must have made in order to get into a situation like this. And looked inside the car with his flashlight, his police police force flashlight, and didn't see the key, so the key wasn't in the car. And our two beloved doggies were there with us. And, you know, after a four and a half hour ordeal, we finally got home. Hmm. And Lord, don't you know, the key was in the car. Hmm. Just by virtue of him saying that it wasn't, we were rerouted to another avenue. We were thinking that it was there before he looked. But once he said it wasn't there, it was already kind of an expectation when you need to figure something else out. My soul kept saying, this key is in this quadrant of space around the car. And it was just fascinating. Where is his humanity? Where's where's the humanity here? And when I began to speak, my partner, don't say anything. Mm. And then I felt fiery inside. Like, are you kidding me? And in honor of her, I didn't. But that part of me that's been taught to own all the aspects of my identity, my middle class privilege to convince him and make sure he knew that I wasn't who he might have thought I was that I was a contributing member of society, that I spoke correct English, that I knew my rights, that the color of my skin didn't automatically categorize me in a way that would have me standing outside in the cold, the buggy. Yeah. That kind of thing happens every single day. And, And the most insidious element of white privilege, one of the most, is the fear of offending a person of color. It's that fear that drives, if you think about the thought or the the cognition, right? Think about that and then how it influences our action. We're working so hard to not be this person that we really that that we really are. Walks like a duck, talk like a duck, we're working so hard. That's actually sometimes when the most offenses occur. Mm. Yeah. Like it's easy as a white person to just get in that shame space and shut down and not even try. And that's what's not, not an option. And but being able to tolerate the the way it feels when you do cause harm to someone and being able to stay present to that and not run from it is I guess the muscle that is being built in this work and how to do better, obviously. I don't think that doing better is the hard part. I think it's the staying with the discomfort of the seeing something about yourself that you don't want to be true about you. There it is. There it is. And it can't happen in a completely homogenous group. People of color have to be there. Yeah. Why is that? The way things are set up, it's it what's it will still bypass. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating dynamic. I appreciate what you're doing and I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to come out in a not so great way of showing like, you know, my own blunder, aggression toward you. But, you know, I feel that I'm guessing that you can hold space like that for all the people that you work with. But I I have a trust in you because of a relationship that we already have from, you know, our previous conversations that I think helps me stay with it 
a little better because it, it doesn't feel good to hurt someone. We're all human beings having a human, human experience. You know? My job in this, in this life, one wild and free life, is to, to honor my ancestors and to be in the practice of being my own advocate. There are times when I'm just too tired, you know, and I want to say, you know, I want to say for those who are listening, Black person in your life, or no matter the capacity you feel, and if you are white, actually, it really doesn't matter. People of color can do so much. You're not responsible for that. But if you can begin being in the practice of compassion about that, you're going to be amazed before you're halfway through. Thinking yourself through anti-racism is impossible. It has to be in your bones, in your cells, epigenetically. And just as you own the parts that are shameful, I have some shame about still not saying as much as I wanted to say to the officer last night. It hurts when you're not authentically yourself. And the numbers are going up on that age. <laughs> so we are going to be expanding our services to people of color now. Hmm. How backwards is that? <laughs> what paradox. Check us out. We, we can, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs. And a lot of the questions they have I just showed my portfolio to this white executive, white male executive, and he said that because he didn't see any white faces on my brand, that I needed to make make the product experience more inclusive. Hmm. Learn my product in this magazine. My dignity is on the line here. What do I say? What do I think? I don't know where he is on his confession anti-racist. Journey, or he even bought his ticket. <laughs> love will not let you be silent. True love will not let you be silent. Yeah. I want to share with you this amazing poem. I'll, I'll actually let you post these poems. One is by Cleo Wade, and the other is by Lucille Clifton. The other one is unknown. I'll share if you don't mind. Oh, please. This is by Cleo Wade, and it's called How to Breathe When You Want to Give Up. Today, I am breathing through fatigue, fear, and feeling overwhelmed. I breathe because when I breathe, I am reminded that I am alive. I'm reminded that to be able to fill my body with air means that I have the ability to keep going. I'm reminded that my time on earth may be short, but it can be powerful if I dedicate it to love and fairness. When I breathe, I'm reminded of Mary Oliver when she wrote, tell me what it is you plan to do with your one wild, precious life. And so I breathe and I let my breath turn into a smile that says back to her as much as I can. The next, the next poem is by Lucille Clifton. Come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. And the last. That one was like short and to the point. Yep. The last here is your story is not just this just shallow pool collecting a little rain here and there from what may be, could have, should have been. Your story is a sea weighted with mystery, and wave after wave, it reveals more and more, no matter what the opportunities you miss 
or left behind on the shore. Your story has every ounce of water it needs. It's not missing any long gone thing. All by grace, it is still being written in the way it was meant to be. Since you're the one who has the mic, maybe you could drop the mic. (laughs) I can't believe you actually did that. (laughs) I put it, I dropped it and it hit the cat on the foot and it caused the whole thing. So (laughs) you can tell I don't do many mic drops. (laughs) Well, there it is. (laughs) We're ending with a bang. Well, Xanthia, it's been beautiful and enlightening speaking with you as I expected, although in unexpected ways. And I'm really grateful for you sharing your time with me. I'm grateful for what you're doing, all of the important things that you've been doing and continue to do and how this is going to evolve. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Therapy Notes for sponsoring this week's episode. I do love Therapy Notes. It's such an asset to my business and makes my job as a practice owner and a therapist much easier. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. Use coupon code CHAT or click the link in the show notes to get two free months at therapynotes.com. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information please visit therapychatpodcast.com. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today.